This week on The Futurists, Juliet Powell and Art Kleiner. The same technology that we use, for example, oh, to find human slaves is right. the very technology that we use to enslave them in many cases. Mm. So it's less about the technology and more about us as humans and what we choose to do with it. Welcome to The Futurist. I'm your host, Brett King, and joining me in the hosting seat today is the lovely Katie King, Miss Metaverse. Welcome back, Katie. Hey, great to be back. So we're going to get into AI today. And, uh, you know, one of the the question marks that we're sort of going through in this alignment phase of where artificial intelligence fits in the world is what role different organizations play in setting controls and regulation, who should be regulating this, you know. Um, so uh, I want to do uh, get into this with a couple of authors who've just released a new book, The AI Dilemma, Seven Principles for Responsible Technology. Let's uh, bring into the show NYU professors and AI uh, aficionados, Juliet Powell and Art Kleiner. Welcome to The Futurists. Thank you. Thanks. Did you both meet at NYU or was it, yeah, that's how you came we in contact? Did. We did. We were introduced years ago by our mutual mentor, Napier Collins, who sadly passed away this year. But he had a vision. He felt that Art and I would do some good work together. And so in 2007, Napier insisted that I attend um, Art Kleiner's class on scenarios and I never went back. Uh, we started working a few years later while Art was at PwC, and he was publishing a, a magazine called Strategy in Business. And a few years after that, um, I was finishing my dissertation. Art read it and said, aha, you have a book here. And here we are. Oh, very good. Yeah. Nice. And uh, you've, you've, this is not your first book, obviously. Um, you've done The Age of Heretics, Her Heretics, Who Really Matters, um, Privilege and Success. Um, you were also editor of the uh, Strate Strategy and Business. That was an e-magazine, wasn't it? Or was it oh, a ma ma yeah, magazine? Well, it started out as a print magazine like the Harvard right. Business Review. Gradually, people stopped reading paper and started reading online. So now yeah. it's... In yeah, I guess because I read it online. That's why I assume that. But uh, And uh, how long have you been at NYU? Well, I've been there quite a number of years uh, on and off. Uh, most of that time, I've actually been teaching a class on the future. It's the future of digital media, and clearly now it's more and more the future of AI. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I think it's probably reasonable to say that you can't be a futurist today without being at least fairly competent in respect to talking about AI. If not how AI works, then at a minimum, I think the implications of AI, because so much of our future is going to be, uh, you know, um, changed or um, impacted by artificial intelligence. Um, it, and it's also interesting that as futurists, there's there's a lot of common themes here that I find with the stuff, that, the work that other futurists are doing. Even um, you know, my my most recent book, you know, I see a lot of alignment there. But, um, you know, AI is sort of different than anything else, isn't it? So uh, maybe I'll, I'll kick off with you. Um, what, what makes AI different in terms of the way society has to think about it? Well, first of all, 
it's an amplifying function for, or it's an amplifying instrument for whatever people are going to do. So if you're looking at the future of AI, you're really looking at the future of decision makers in business, government, uh, everywhere. And that future is now the same as it ever was, but faster and broader and affecting more people. So when you're looking at the future of AI, you're looking at technology in its most, uh, in the broadest possible range of possibilities. And when people say, you know, so for instance, just a, f a few, just a week ago, Gary Marcus proposed that nice. maybe, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Maybe the future of Gen AI is a dud. You know, it doesn't go anywhere. You know, I, I, I don't understand, Gary, you know, for someone who's such an AI, you know, um, a champion. He's awfully negative about AI at the moment, but I know it's I know it's not um, AI thematically necessarily. It's just this sort of current generation and and how we're too reliant on it or too accepting of it right now. But he made some good points. You know, in, in terms of the the regulatory frame framework and so forth, one of the things that you raise in the book fairly quickly is the the um, the problem of governments and what governments might want to do with artificial intelligence and then the issue with um re regulating the same so it doesn't do damage to society so i mean this is obviously part of what you have in the title of the book the ai dilemma but can i ask you for a little bit more detail behind that the, the theme of the ai dilemma and what it actually is juliet do you want to kick that off sure I mean, I think the, the AI dilemma was actually explained to us uh, by an 80-year-old woman at a funeral that we met um, very, very unexpectedly. And she she was looking for a distraction and she asked if she could read the book in advance. And we sent it to her, of course. And she said, I don't know that I'll know anything about it, but I, I'm very interested and I'm curious. And so she got back to us and she sent this, this lovely email in which she says, if I understand correctly, the AI dilemma is that in mm. the right hands, the technology can be beneficial to all of us. And in the wrong hands, it could really cause some serious harm. And I think she just nailed it. She nailed it. She said it in such a way that anybody on the planet can actually understand. Um, in fact, it is a, a great a great, great technology. It's an inspiring technology, and it's a technology that gives me a great deal of hope. At the same time, the same technology that we use, for example, um, oh, to find human slaves is right. the very technology that we use to enslave them in many cases. Mm. So it's less about the technology and more about us as humans and what we choose to do with it. I think much of the discussion around the need to regulate artificial intelligence is coming from that fact that, you know, ultimately um, it depends in whose hands it is and what they aim to do with it. Many of the applications that we hear about are commercial applications, applications that we find on our phone, applications right. that we our laptop. You know, if we think about AI uh, and its impact already, it's essentially what underpins our modern society as we know it, at least in G8 countries. And I think that 
there is a great responsibility that comes with that. Different countries are trying to look at regulation from a very different perspective. So far, the United States has been fairly laissez-faire compared to other places. Um, I look at, for example, the, you know, the EU and their risk-based approach, which I think makes a lot of sense, especially for them, because much of their law is steeped in human rights. Here in the United States, our law is not necessarily steeped in human rights, but it definitely right. has a lot to do with ownership and property. And so a lot of the lawsuits that we're seeing uh, that are happening since OpenAI launched ChatGPT is very much in the realm of ownership, intellectual property. But I think we're going to be seeing more and more um, issues around harm, harm to humans. And that is something that the mm. AI. Well, of course, one of the things that you guys get into is, you know, to, to some extent, although, um, you know, I haven't got to the second half of the book yet, but um, it is the impact of, of work. And so when you look at um, the the implications of AI more broadly in terms of uh, work and so forth, you'll hear these economists make the argument that whenever we've had these technologies in the past, like the internet or whatever, we've created more jobs than the technologies destroyed. But for the last 60 years, we've been writing in science fiction and, um, you know, portraying it in terms of, uh, you know, um, the projections of the future is that we're going to have all these robots do all these jobs for us and, and, and take, you know, Rosie, the robot vacuuming the home and do helping the kids with the homework and, and things like that. And I, and, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people are sort of making this economic argument, but the intent of AI has always been to take human jobs. So, um, I think it's. Uh, I think the ultimate, um, you know, implications of AI is it's going to fundamentally change the relationship of work in society. Um, but anyway, I'm. I'm. I don't want to take but over from it, you guys. But yeah, here's the is, thing, though: is it is it really taking the human jobs, or is it helping humans elevate their right. jobs in different ways? Right. What I do mean, you it's think, supposed I, to be I, a tool. Yeah. In scenario where we try to distinguish between the things we know for sure, predetermined elements, and the things we don't know. One of the things we know for sure is that the number of young people seeking work is going to decrease overall for the world, but increase in some of the emerging economies, especially Africa. Another thing we know for sure is that uh, you know Moore's law will continue for a while, so the power and capacity of the technology will increase. One thing we don't know is whether the product whether there will be visible productivity gains, we still don't know that for sure. We can guess, and we don't know if there are productivity gains how different decision makers will react. We may well see some countries mandate a two-day work week. You know, we may right. well see some people taking. We might on see some countries try to ban AI so that humans stay employed. Yeah, I get it. And with a black market, be a range of outcomes. Yeah, if that happens, we know for sure there will be a black market in it. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So we have to we have to temper our predictions with the awareness that most of the things people are scared about right now. There's reason to be scared, but there's also reason to be optimistic. And a lot depends yes. on what we create. Um, I, I, I do notice uh, or note, Juliet, you talked about the EU 
and the AI regulation that's emerging there. Uh, you know, the same is true of GDPR. You know, the, mm-hmm. the EU led on that. Um, you know, when you look at things like uh, banking regulations and so forth, the US has been behind on that as well. And and you explain the reason for that, right? But, um, you know, in terms of the EU leading this uh, regulatory environment, do you think, um, I didn't get to this in the book, but do, do you guys think that there is an aspect of regulation around AI that will need to become, maybe it's the EU standard that extends out, but that in effect we are sort of um, having to globalise regulation on AI because of the, the depth of its uh, impact? Well, I think, so you bring up GDPR and one thing that um, has become very, very apparent to both Art and I in doing the research for this book is that even big tech is playing catch up with GDPR, okay? And, yeah. and it came out in 2018. So I can't think of one company that is ready for the AIA Act as it currently stands. Um, I can't think of one company that actually has shaped its deployment of artificial intelligence in such a way that it can easily pass uh, what will most likely be the regulation coming out of the EU at the end of this year, or early next year. Yeah. So that's one thing to consider. Um, do we play catch up and how do we play catch up? I think another thing to consider is the reason why I started looking at regulation in the first place is because so many big tech companies were saying and are still saying to a certain extent, we are self-regulating, we will self-regulate. And if we're not self-regulating, then we will help the government regulate us, which is often the case when we hear people like um, the, the, you know, the current founder of Facebook, as well as uh, the founder of OpenAI, Sam Altman, they're on tour. They go on tour and they talk about the importance of you know being regulated and how they can help shape that regulation. Of course, there's a lot to be gained there for the companies. There's a lot to be gained there for the government. Is there a lot to be gained there by the people? Well, it depends on who you ask. And I think that that's one of the things that many people that that are, you know, focused on potential harms are looking at is can individuals um, fight back if an AI discriminates against you? Right. Can yeah, a person yeah. fight back if you're in a car accident that involves a self-driving car? Right. Can you push back against the current regulations that we have if there is an AI involved and we just don't know? Hence, the lawsuits that have been coming out from just about every uh, every area surrounding artificial intelligence at the moment. Yeah, to, to that point, Juliet, you know, you, you, you guys came up with a really nice nugget in, in the book, which was in, in the chapter on data privacy. And you're talking about the big bad guys, you know, Facebook and Google, who've had tons of fines and so forth. And you make the point, well, Apple collects just as much data as those guys do, right? If so, not more. Yeah, if not more. So, um, and have huge amount of control. And I know we'll get into that, but Katie, you had a, you had a point, a question, right? Yeah, well, you know, there's just this recent news about how here in the US, it was ruled that AI generated art uh, cannot be copyrighted. What are your thoughts about that? Well, one of my close, close friends, Jonathan Askin, who's an internet lawyer at Brooklyn Law School, also brought a case to the Supreme Court, which was thrown out. Uh, but the idea was that AI would have the right to own its own copyright. And the reason why he brought it to the Supreme Court was very specific. He feels that if we in the United States do not allow this, other countries will. 
And ultimately, is it about the current case or is it about the larger picture of who owns what in the future? I feel like we're always playing this geopolitical game when we talk about AI. It's no longer just about, you know, the technology itself, but the power that it brings. And I feel like there's a whole lot of power mongering uh, that's Mm -hmm. happening, not just in terms of, you know, us as individuals and our personal data or our ability to copyright, you know, Sarah Silverman's point, a book uh, or any other, you know, product of our minds and have it be used and regurgitated and then monetized. So that's on the individual level. But then on the collective level, do we want really our artificial intelligence to work for us in terms of the human race or in terms of the arm race? These are much larger questions that are also coming to the fore that worry me as much. What are your thoughts on the biggest misuse cases of AI today? What would you say are the top three concerns you have? Uh, I'm going to name two and I'll let you name one. And there are two because they're very much top of mind um, coming from my previous call this morning. Uh, One is the use of AI in education. Uh, And the other one is the use of AI in medicine. And I say this specifically from the perspective of there's a lack in the United States. We have a lack of medical professionals, uh, especially due to the pandemic and the results. Um, There's a lack of teachers at every level here. And the idea is to see how much of this AI can we really use to teach? How much of this AI can we really use to help prescribe and um, keep our citizens healthy? And these two areas terrify me because they're the few areas where we actually have protections around personal data in education as well as in health. Um, And the other thing that really, really makes me nervous is, you know, Art and I teach and we've already seen the impact of, you know, learning from a distance has had not just in G8 countries, but all over the world. You know, when we talk to people in in certain places in Africa that, you know, for the last year and a half have not had access to any kind of education whatsoever. Um, I am very, very worried. So now the idea of now relying on technology that's unproven to be able to teach our kids or to make medical diagnoses without that kind of training. So it's a different thing to use a chat bot uh, and train it with a corpus, with a medical corpus or with an educational corpus and supervise it, stay in the loop. And it's another thing to say, oh, well, we're just gonna use ChatGPT and kids can just ask questions, patients can just ask Mm. questions. We're going to hope that the thing isn't hallucinating (laughs) and really build a piece of our future on that bet. That worries me. Uh, But we have seen we have seen um, medically trained LLMs perform on things like uh, cancer diagnosis at at levels better than humans. So if if it's applied in the right with the right data set, as you say. Sorry. uh, But here's the thing. All right. Sorry. And and who has access? I mean, these uh, hospitals have networks, right? So the problem is is that you could go to NYU and have one network of AI, right? And then there's another uh, that has a different network. Uh, you know, perhaps we should be able to share these networks in order to provide the best information that we can, especially if this is where we're going moving forward. Which brings us back to personal data ownership. I can barely control my data, let alone say that I own it. I can't stop Mm -hmm. anybody from using it. Um, Ultimately, I think these are much bigger questions that we absolutely need to address as a core. 
All right, Art, back to you. Everything everyone has said, and Juliet, I got chills a couple times listening to you, realizing some of the ramifications, particularly around education. But then you add to this predictive analytics. And I think that's the most serious immediate issue, even beyond the others. Uh, and that's an area where the track record is really bad in many established cases. Education, you know, kids getting tracked into uh, remedial education tracks that they don't belong in because yeah. somehow they tagged with the wrong data, you know, with data that's been misinterpreted by an automated system, and then this, and then the human beings rubber stamped it. Um, we cover a case in the Netherlands. The Netherlands, you know, the the epitome of an enlightened country. Mm. If you don't look closely, and uh, which you know ultimately took children away from parents who were predicted to be uh, fraud risks. We're not fraud, but we're predicted to be in terms of uh, receiving government benefits. And that's some know, minority we, port stuff, that is. Well, it was well, because they were minorities, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You looked Excuse at minority, you know, we look, I looked at minority report. A friend of ours actually was a science advisor to minority report, Peter Schwartz. And when yeah. I saw that, which was now more than a decade ago, I thought, you know, these are things that likely would happen, except they won't because people will be aware of it. They will be, you know, because of movies like this, people and the science fiction you talk about, people will be aware of it. We talked to physicists about, you know, is it possible that decision makers around uh, nuclear weapons will have put AI in charge without human beings in the loop to oversee it? And the physicists told us, well, yeah, of course they will. Some will, because yeah. deductive nature of the technology, you know, it's the path of least resistance. We're all so busy that we will welcome the chance for an automated system. And also because the weapons need to be, you know, the decisions need to be made so quickly. We don't have time to put human beings in the loop. Um, well, all I can say to that art is, come, come with me if you want to live. <laughs> Skynet, no, all right. Um, now, at this point of the show, we like to um, have a quick fire round and ask you guys some light, lightning round questions. So, just short answers, but it helps our audience get to know you a bit better. So, here is the lightning round. Uh, first of all, art, and then uh, Juliet. When was the first time you heard of artif the concept of artificial intelligence? Back in the 80s, as at the Whole Earth Catalog, we wrote about it. Okay. Marvin Jinsky on stage at the TED conference, and I was helping to produce TED. Ah, very cool. Yeah, Ted's 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 uh, had some pearls over the years, some really interesting insights. Uh, Ian Bremmer's most recent TED talk is fascinating if, if you haven't seen it. Uh, okay. Um, uh, okay, Juliet, you can go first on this one. What do you think is, is the most influential or uh, consequential technology that uh, we've ever invented? The most consequential? Uh, yes, or the most fire. important to human. Fire. So All right, that's a good one. I'm going to go with fire. It helps us survive. Oh. Art? Well, then obviously the wheel. The wheel. Okay. 
then Art, I'll ask you this one. Is there a futurist or a researcher or an entrepreneur or a mentor that uh, uh, has had particular influence on your career? A few. Stuart Brand, um, Napier Collins, uh, and mm. uh, Pierre Vac. But, you know, he's passed away now, but yes. I really paid attention to him. Very nice. Juliet? Oh, my gosh. I, I think of people that were my mentors. I think of um, John Perry Barlow. In fact, Barlow uh, was the person that ring me really made me think about the idea of futurism in that he would mm. say, I'm not a futurist. I'm a presentist. I'm somebody who looks at where things are at now and where they will intersect in the future. And so okay. I, I would say that I'm very much a presentist. Well, well, you know, I, we've had, we had Jeff Jarvis on last week and Jeff was like, you have to be a good pastist to be a good futurist. So I think, you know, there's <laughs> oh. a, there's a lot. All right. Final, final question before we go to break. Um, and uh, Juliet, you can go first this time. Is there any science fiction story that you've read that is uh, representative of the sort of future you hope for? The future that I hope for? Hmm. Um, long live Harry Seldon. <laughs> Very cool. Art? So yes, uh, Isaac Asimov for those who yeah. are familiar. Absolutely, foundation. Second season on uh, Apple TV right now. Not not a not a promoter. Not a yeah, supporter. a little bit different than the books, though. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, art. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's work. Oh, uh, awesome! The Mars trilogy and the New York one about being flooded. You know, where we, we are on the same page. Yeah, it, you know, humanity is under incredible pressure, and the human spirit. You know, we awesome. pull in of our teeth. I guess also Thornton Wilder. Fantastic. All right. Well, let's take a quick break. You're listening to The Futurists. We'll be right back talking about the AI dilemma with uh, Juliet Powell and Art Kleiner right after this break. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the FinTech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one FinTech podcast and radio show. Welcome to The Futurists. Before the uh, break, we had uh, NYU professors and AI expert Juliet Powell and Art Kleiner talking to us about the AI dilemma, seven principles for responsible technology. So um, before the break, um, Art, you know, we were talking a lot about the, uh, the, the potential or the different uh, paths that AI can take in, in respect to this. But I do want to sort of... Um, you know, let, let's get to the heart of this. There are some challenges here, but overall, you guys seem to be fairly optimistic. Uh, tell me about why that is, in because uh, I, th I think you made a deliberate decision to be quite optimistic about the future of AI. I tend to believe what Anne Frank said, that people are basically good at heart. And I also believe 
um, what Anne Herbert, a uh, poet, said. Uh, why haven't uh, this was back in the '80s, and she wrote, "Why haven't? Why hasn't there been nuclear war yet? Because everybody has that little thing that they want to do tomorrow." And that that quality of human nature is very powerful. It has not prevailed in every case, and it may not prevail this time, but it prevails over time in the vast multiplicity of cases. Um, in the book, we talk about loosely coupled systems and tightly coupled systems and how tightly coupled systems are more vulnerable because there are fewer decision points and the decision points are held by a tighter group of people. I guess I put my hope in the fact that reality is kind of loosely coupled and, you know, and that sooner or later that wins out in the long run and hopefully this time too. I mean, one of the things that you, um, you play with as a theme is uh, the, the potential for control mechanisms, uh, particularly for sort of autocratic styles of government. And, and you know, the, the greatest benefit that AI brings us is that we will be able to automate government and we'll be able to make government small through the use of technology. You know, we'll be able to make healthcare much more uh, cost-effective and, and so forth. Um, I know I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm making the arguments that you guys make in the book as well, but um, uh, Juliet, when, when we sort of get into uh, this, uh, the, these frameworks, the, the success of AI requires us to destroy, uh, you know, some of these uh, systems that we have in place. For example, the, you know, the intermediate um, players, the middlemen in the healthcare systems, uh, these massive government bureaucracies that could be automated away like the, the IRS and, and so forth. And um, that, you know, not only does that require a, a act of Congress in many cases, it also requires um you know, some pretty significant political will. So what are your thoughts in terms of how that gets navigated over the next 20 or 30 years? As I said, I think artificial intelligence is the tool that just about everyone is turning to to feel the sense that they have more power. And if if the powers that be want to reduce government, they will use the technology to do so. If they want to use the technology to have AI supremacy over the rest of the world, then they will use the technology to do that. Um, I don't think that there's just one way of wielding it, but what makes me very optimistic is that because of the nature of the technology, you now have many, 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 many more people that actually have the technology in their own hands that can actually start understanding what the technology does, how it affects your life, how it affects your decisions, much more so than in the abstract way, perhaps, that we learned about it 20, 30 years ago, or even just you know, last year, before the launch of ChatGPT, I think a lot of people were still trying to wrap their head around what AI was or why should I even care. Uh, many people were thinking about data in, in terms of, you know, their data plans on their phones, and that was about it. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> no, I'm I'm being very very serious, and now, at the same yeah. time, I I do. See now we're talking that, about digital twins, and you know, uh, yeah, does your, but we're also children's seeing DNA more power in the protected. hands of yeah. individuals, which means that we're going to see a lot more people that are going to be starting their own companies using these tools. We're going to be seeing a lot more people that are also throwing their hat into the ring to become the politicians that they would like to see. I don't think anybody in the United States right now is very happy with the politicians that we have <laughs> across the board for the Yeah, 20th it's quite election. possible AI will do a better job, right? Well, we're already yeah. seeing other countries, candidates, right? AI candidates that are being thrown out um, as alternative picks or, or votes. So uh, we were asked recently um, from for somebody who does a, a religious blog, um, you know, what do we see with AI? And of course, we did a quick look, very cursory look. And what do we see? All kind of, you know, AI gods, AI Jesus. We've got AI Ganesh, AI Shiva. There's there's the panoply yeah. of anything that you could possibly want. Um, but the power, I think all of these things are distractions, right? The real power is those that actually have access to the technology, who know how to manipulate the technology, and the know how to spread that manipulation. And I think that's about to really come into the head with mm. the next cycle. Yeah, because it's all. This is not a, a national. This is not national infrastructure AI. It's it's <laughs> corporate IP right now. It is. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, you know. Uh, I mean, you 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 have been teaching on the future and obviously to do that, you have to start thinking about policy setting. Um, you know, so how, how do you think AI is going to change the way we approach policy setting? Who do you mean by we, Brett? Well, <laughs> society <laughs> as a unit, I don't know. Yes. I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, but th this, this is the thing, you know, is if we're going to automate society, that has to be based on some sort of plan or policy. And, um, you know, we, we will have technology, for example, to automate food production systems to give, you know, greater food security to people. But we also have the option not to do that and to try and, you know, keep the current system going to uh, create scarcity and so forth, right? So, the, okay, when it comes to identifying we in decision making, it's turtles all the way down. Um, I believe what right. Tom Wolf wrote about in the Bonfire of the Vanities. There is no single we group of decision makers. There's lots of people with different interests, and they all clash. And history is written by the impact of their clashing. It's uh, in that context, the we that happens to be the regulators of the European Union have done a remarkable thing because they've said there are four different types of AI. There's minimal risk AI like, you know, like uh, spell checkers. There's high risk AI like self-driving cars. We really need them to operate, but we don't want them to crash into us. There's limited risk AI, which is AI that's great as long as it's acknowledging that it's AI, you know, if if, uh, if you're forming a relationship with someone over the internet, and then you're going to meet, you don't want to find out that they're actually a bot. And if so, they would be limited. And then there's an unacceptable AI, nuclear weapons control, or whatever right. it may be. And one of the challenges is defining which 
which tools go into which boxes. But the result is, if it's unacceptable, it's banned. If it's if it's high risk, it's audited, just as high risk financial activities are audited. If it's limited risk, you know, there's an honor system until you're caught, probably. And if it's minimal risk, they kind of let it go. And then they establish sandboxes so that innovation, which is always transgressive in some way, has a place to play. That, to me, seems like it will take hold, at least in the short run, because basically the EU is saying anybody who wants to do business in the European Union, regardless of what else you do, wherever else you do, all your activity has to fit this model. Right. Then that's that's like the alpha release of policy. That will either set the tone for what happens everywhere or there will be a backlash against it that, you know, kind of puts it to sleep. But that's the model that now people will respond to. And then from there, we will have feedback. We, humanity will have feedback. Decision yeah, well, well, China, China's uh, regulatory ecosystem and the EU share quite a bit in common. So there seems to be um, more consensus than, than we might think. Um, but th- their society is focused on the collective good, of course, not, not necessarily trying to guarantee the individual rights, right, uh, in the same way. Sorry, Katie, you wanted to follow up, right? Sure. Well, I mean, how how far behind is the U.S. Uh, in, com- in comparison to the EU in, in regards to regulation and, and AI? Uh, are we really far behind? You know, are, are regulators aware of what's going on? Because, I mean, the last time I, I watched a, a conference was it maybe a year ago or so. Uh, they were talking about TikTok and and, and Facebook. It, it was uh, they, they didn't know anything about technology or, or algorithms or social media, how it works at all. I mean, how are we supposed to trust that they can get involved in this space whatsoever? And, and what can we do to help catch them up to speed somehow? I think that the politicians are asking themselves exactly the same question. Um, you're right. The, the, the things that we've seen on television in the last two years um, have been embarrassing where we've seen Senate committee members asking silly questions because they just can't seem to wrap their their minds around not only what the technology that is, let alone what the technology will be in the future. Hence my comment earlier about big tech essentially working with the U.S. government to try to shape something that works both from a regulatory perspective where, you know, the government can feel that it's protecting its citizens and potentially protecting us from bad actors on one end and on the other end, um, you know, not stifling the innovation of our big tech and competition. I think that there's, well, I mean, the reality is that um, you're right. There there's a lack of education. What can we do about it? Well, we know that there's a lack of education. So people like Gary Marcus that you brought up earlier, as well as um, others, have not only signed a petition saying that there should be a six-month moratorium of around um, advanced AI development and also research, but also that there should be this governing body, this global governing body that would be responsible for, you know, the regulation of AI across the board in all use cases for the world. 
is this something that we as a global community is finally ready for? Are we ready to say that an organization that what perhaps seems like a NATO is going to be effective or a United Nations? Right. We've seen them be effective. And so these are, you know, larger questions again. I don't think in my lifetime that that's I've ever even, thought that that's the even UN before was we effective. Start, yeah, that's even before we start talking about climate impact, right? Mm. So just on AI, we need global consensus. We need global approach, obviously, right. right? As we've seen with social media and with climate, we're going to need that as well. So it's that Aristotle view, you know, if you want hu the human species to thrive, we have to do it together, you know, so... Well, we can't even agree, you know, on basic things. Uh, are you familiar with the moral machine experiment? It's at the beginning sure. of our book, sure. right? Where anybody can go yeah. online and participate Ow! in this thing <laughs> yeah. and, Sorry. you know, be the, the self-driving car. Who are you going to kill? You're going to kill the man. You're going to kill the woman. You're going to kill the child. You're going to kill the dog. And we can't even agree on who we should kill, who who should survive. Right. And, and meanwhile, if you actually look at the data, where, where the result of AI in cars will be that we just kill a lot less humans because of their greater, uh, well, at least once we get the kinks worked out. But uh, you wanted to talk about trust a bit, so let me yeah. redirect to you. Yeah, and, and we all, we're going to kill a lot less in aggregate, but nobody wants to be that one exception. Right, yeah. I don't want to be the first uh, the first person right. killed by a robo-taxi. In fact, isn't, hasn't that already happened? <laughs> yeah, there, you, you, you have to yeah. stand it. There's been a, a lot, uh, which yeah. I don't need to joke about it. I shouldn't, but it's, no. um, it is. And actually that we have not heard the word trust yet in this conversation. And yet that's what we're talking about. Mm. Are we going to trust government to regulate this and use it wisely? Probably not all the way. Mm. You know, I'm not sure I agree that China's approach is the same as Europe's approach, but no matter whose approach okay. it is, our original title for the book was Who Watches the Watch Robots? And well, one of our working titles. And that, you know, that is a big issue. How do you, who, yeah. how far does it go before you trust business? We trust business. Well, we do if we're the entrepreneur. But how long before? The yeah. We're going to go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> uh, do we trust the engineers? Well, we do. Again, you know, yeah. do we trust people to overcome? the least common denominator approaches that are in the structures that we live in. Well, the, and, the one thing counting for us is that if we don't develop that trust, if we don't develop that approach to working together, it's only the species that's at risk, right? No big deal. Yeah. But the trust has to be earned. We, if we trust it and our trust is misplaced, that's not a good outcome either. Yeah. So it, it trusts. All right, well, let's get a bit sci-fi. Because we're running running up to the end of the show, and we like to get a bit futuristic. So, Art, obviously, I'm going to start with you as the futurist of record in this conversation. Um, but I want to I'm going to look out to you know 2040 2050 time frame. Um, tell me how you imagine artificial intelligence will be integrated into into society at that point of time. We know three things for sure. We know that the average age of humanity will be older. And we know that the technology, you know, the hardware will be faster and cheaper. And then we know that there will still be press pressure from climate change, that there will still be environmental crisis. So with that in mind, um, over, you know, people learn to use technology 
more effectively for better and worse. And it takes about 10 years for that to happen. So we're going to have very high levels of acumen with AI in solving problems. Whose problems? We don't know. Who benefits? We don't know. I think there, um, I don't think there's such a thing as an optimistic or a pessimistic future. I think there's a future of agreed upon guidelines and rules that people break all the time and that we're always just. Future is what we make it. One step. Yeah. All right. So, um, uh, you know, I, I'm aware that we've come to uh, the, the the conclusion of our, our conversation. I think we could have talked for another hour on this. It's been uh, been a great yeah. to- uh, conversation. Um, how can, uh, Juliet, how can people find, find the book and find out more about uh, the AI dilemma and uh, um, keep in touch with what you guys are writing and talking about? Oh, well, you can find us under Kleiner Powell. Dot com. Uh, the book is there. Our AI advisory is there and bios on Art and I and some of the work that we've done for other clients. Uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, JulietPowell.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. Art is also very much on LinkedIn, very active there. And we'd be happy to talk with you anytime. So, you know, if we didn't have enough time this time, like we didn't even talk about universal basic income. If we're going to talk about the oh. AI taking over, we need to talk about UBI. Okay. Like All right. So let's know. We, we can't kind of finish without that. that. We this is this is the extended episode now, but <laughs> this is fine. Um, so um, let let let's ask about that because you know I, I I think that the only way to deal you know we we've never had a technology that can simultaneously affect uh, such a wide range of of jobs so quickly, right? So that's why I think that you either are going to have at some point massive technological unemployment or you you know, and the social unrest that comes with it, or you'll have UBI. That That's sort of the binary choice for me. But what do you guys, what do you think, Juliet? I don't necessarily think that the choice is binary at all. I think that both options will likely be on the table and that the pandemic was very much a test to yes. see what individuals would do um, with free money arriving and, um, you know, a set limit on what they can and cannot do physically. I think... Uh, as much as people weren't thinking of it necessarily in that realm, I think that a lot of governments collected a whole lot of data uh, towards that possibility, especially in North America. I think that ultimately, um, if we can get to a place where individuals can own their own personal data, then I feel like we will have much more trusted frameworks where people actually have you know, the the ability to weigh in on what their data should be used for. So if we all agree that climate change is an issue and that we want to use our collective data in that way, we can. We have the technology to do that mm. today, um, but we don't own our data. And therefore, it's up to others to make those larger decisions for us. We can cure cancer today. We have enough data to do yes, that. Absolutely. But again, yep. is this the priority? So far, not. We could we um, could be on 100% renewable energy by now if we if we had made that decision, you know, back in the 70s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do think that um, talking about these things much more openly is, you know at least the first step in making any kind of a change. And it's a change that's needed. I think that there are a lot of asymmetries of power that will change once people start monetizing their own data or telling large organizations, yeah, do you want to monetize mine? Sure. You can negotiate with me and my 100,000 best friends over there, and I'll tell you how much it's going to cost you. Great. I like it. 
Well, thank you both for joining the show. And uh, um, if if you're listening, check out the AI Dilemma, Seven Principles for Responsible Technology, wherever good books are sold. NYU professors, Juliet Powell and uh, Art Kleiner, thank you for joining us on The Futurists. Thank you. That's it for The Futurists this week. Um, we'll be back with you next week. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you tweet it out or send it to the fr- your friends or, you know, make a comment on it, give us a review. All of that helps people find the content. And, uh, you know, um, it seems like it's working because we're having some really tremendous growth after crossing the half million uh, downloads ma- download mark uh, earlier this year. Um, so, uh, keep in touch. Uh, listen, listen out for the next episode. We are going to have Kim Stanley Robinson on in September, so um, looking forward to Yay. that one. Uh, you can uh, you can uh, maybe listen in on that one as well. That's going to be a lot of fun. But until then, we will see you next week, of course, because we will see you in, in the, the future. future. <laughs> <laughs>well that's it for the futurists this week if you like the show we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community and don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show and you can ping us anytime on instagram and twitter at at futurist podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask thanks for joining and as always we'll see you in the future